and uh, hello to everybody listening and welcome back to our podcast we took a long break we took a very long break like a sabbatical from podcasting it was good though but we're we're back now sort of sort of yeah we're gonna try to get it to 100 episodes and keegan's thinking of starting his own solo show and i'm starting of thinking start I'm, I'm i'm thinking of starting my own solo show but don't worry we're still together we're just uh on different paths still married still married yep going strong absolutely and <laughs> but we feel like uh go full crypto was a worthwhile podcast yeah. to have we hope that you all learned quite a lot about yeah. this and we hope to capture some of your attention in the things that we'll be doing in the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, the point of the last like four or five months of absence for us is to like really get clear on what we want to be doing. Yeah, and we're forward. still not that clear on it. We're <laughs> s- still deliberating, but yeah. But once we do set off on another path and like start taking steps, I'm sure that it'll be more more clear to us and you, hopefully, um, about about what the future holds. We, we hope to still educate you on, on cryptocurrency, sure, on Bitcoin, yes, on monetary history. Uh, like my passion still lies within improving the, the digital literacy and the financial literacy of uh, people who choose to listen to us. And I'm, I'm just personally eternally grateful for anyone and everyone who spends even five minutes listening to us. Um, like we, how many listens do we have on our podcast, Morgan? I just checked today. It was forty thousand nine hundred. I mean, that's like what's forty point nine k? Yeah, forty yeah, thousand nine hundred. Yeah, and that's incredible. Yeah, true. <laughs> For two years, like it totally exceeded my expectations because, um, I don't know. I think we had like low expectations of uh, like who, I had who would no listen expect- to us. I know I had zero expectations. It was crazy that people take value from what we have to say, which is great. I guess. Thank you. Yeah, uh, I'm glad that you have taken away information and hopefully um some new tidbits about bitcoin and just the world i guess as it relates to money yeah and as always we'd love to hear from our audience and our listeners and so if you have any questions or feedback or comments in general um you can always send those to ready at gofullcrypto maybe (laughs) well we'll just find us somewhere else though because ready at gofullcrypto even though it's a functional email right now, if we start doing our own thing, it may not be a functional email. So we're both on LinkedIn and Instagram and Facebook and Twitter everywhere, Twitter, really. Yep. So feel free to reach out. So All right. This episode, Murga. Yes. Keegan, um, you I've read... I've been reading lots of books. Yeah. Good job. Yeah. So we went to India last year and I read some We books actually there. went to India this year. Right. We were in India this year. <laughs> yeah. And I read a book uh, about taxes, um, and we did a podcast on that. Um, But it's in my pursuit of understanding monetary history. And part of that has been understanding the role of gold and being able to defend the arguments of, uh, of being on a gold standard. So the most recent book that I read is a book called Gold Wars. Uh, I think we referenced... Who's it by? It's by Ferdinand Lips. And, How did you hear about it? Uh, through Robert Breedlove. So oh. uh, I googled... Robert Breed loves book recommendations. <laughs> and then I ordered basically every one of them off of uh, Amazon. And so I'm just chugging my way through uh, the list of his recommendations and trying to catch myself up on on monetary history and gain a more wholesome perspective of where we came from and why we find ourselves in a, in a precarious economic situation now. That's great. Um, so Gold Wars... Was it to defend the whole narrative about Bitcoin being similar to gold? This book actually has nothing to do with Bitcoin. 
What was the reason, though, that Robert Breedlove suggested this book? Oh, be- okay. So it's to understand the powers at, at play. Um, and by powers, I mean uh, actors, uh, economic actors. May that be countries, central banks, uh, gold producers. Um, you have to understand the incentive structures and the role that each one of these organizations can play, right? Governments obviously play a political role uh, where central banks play more of an economic role. But in the book, they cover that uh, like governments and banks like work very closely with one another. And uh, there's not a clear separation between the two. And that causes there to be lots of collusion and, uh, and unforeseen circumstances. Well, I mean, it is called the gold wars. And I'm assuming it's not recent wars that it's referring to. So when you say that the government didn't... It uh, is actually. So the the whole book actually just covers the last 120 years. It was written in 2001. And the like the book, the majority of the book covers between 1971 and two and the year 2000. And when they say gold wars, they're um, Ferdinand Lips is talking about uh, Governments and central banks war on gold and the suppression of gold as um, as a base money or as a base monetary supply or a base uh, monetary system or the gold standard. That's what gold wars mean. So it sounds like the central bank and the government were waging war against people's belief in gold. That's absolutely correct. Yeah, yeah. Ferdinand Lips, he um, he outlines all sorts of propaganda campaigns from 1970 through to the end of the 90s, um, discrediting gold as, um, discrediting the gold standard, but also discrediting gold as a worthwhile investment. And there was active uh schemes to suppress the value of gold um and like it's it's totally counterintuitive to be um which i'm sure we'll get into like i've earmarked all sorts of uh quotes and and whatnot from the book and i think we'll just kind of take a walk through the book and i'll read some of these and we can discuss those passages sounds good something that i want you to answer at some point hopefully towards the end of this podcast is how do you trust the information that was used to write this book in the first place? You said that he cited quotes and articles that were posted uh, on whatever he has written in the book. And I'm wondering how, how much of this is fabricated or biased or like the point that I guess this book makes, is it to blame one party or is it simply um, an overview of what did take place without any bias on what should have taken place no no i think that there is a bit of bias in this book it's written from the perspective of someone who supports gold and supports a gold standard uh ferdinand lips was a an economist um i'm not sure if uh, he's still living right now um but he wrote the book in the summer of 2001 before 9-11 which kind of leaves like the last 20 years out of the whole picture right <laughs> um and maybe like towards the end of the podcast we'll um we'll try to paint a picture of what has happened in the last 20 years um, because he ends the book with uh, gold sitting at around 250 US dollars per ounce and now obviously we can go and like Google this gold sit- is sitting at like $1,800 per ounce so some t- something happened in the last 20 years that caused caused gold to almost 10x um, yeah you're reading about Ferdinand Lips yeah yeah I, <laughs> I mean I just uh, turned Open to the book, yeah. page number 7 and it says that 
Born in Switzerland in 1931, Ferdinand Lips is a well-established and respected authority on gold and the gold markets. His roots are in banking, where he started his career and became a co-founder and a managing director of Rothschild Bank AG in Zurich. That's an interesting background on, on him. Okay, in 1987, he opened his own bank, Bank Lips AG, also in Zurich. He retired in 1998 when he sold his equity interest in the bank. Not being one to sit around idly, Mr. Lips continues to be very active in the banking, gold, and financial fields. And yada, da, da, da. All right. So he has written two books previously. Das Busch der Geldanlanz in 1981 and Geld, Gold und die Wahrheit in 1991. That is... Some you could you could use some help on your German there, or, or yeah, whatever true. that was. <laughs> and then Gold Wars is his third book and expresses his views on gold, the gold standard, and the gold exchange standard, as well as the various attempts to manipulate gold and eventually push push it aside. So yeah, I think that we can say that he he does have a bit of a bias here. But with that being said, um, I was really impressed with the the citations in the book. At the end of every chapter, there's like two or three pages of citations for um, all the quotes he used, all the historical facts that he he brought up. Um, he cites government papers. He cites economists. He cites bankers. He cites uh, people from the gold mining industry. And so he brings in all of these uh, these resources and compiles it into basically a narrative of what happened and then why it happened from a lens of um, of a gold bias, I would say. That's, that's kind of the book in a nutshell. Does he also explain why the government and Central Bank wanted to do what they did? Is there a... Yeah, like the, their perspective or their view on what they were trying to do? The short and skinny of it is that... Uh, people always want something for nothing. And what, what do you mean by that? Um, if you can get something for nothing, you're inclined, like people, it's human nature to, to, to say yes to that. I'll give you this for free. And we're inclined to say, oh, great, I got that without and putting any work in. Bonus, that's wicked, that's awesome. Um, and so that's what fiat money essentially represents. And so the suppression of gold is um, essentially... Uh, getting well, something it, for nothing getting something for nothing fiat money is getting something for nothing the ability to create money or print money out of thin air is is the is the something for nothing it's actually against the government's best interest to do this uh, but governments kind of put the power to print money in the hands of central banks and then the central banks in tandem with the international monetary fund um, had an active campaign to suppress the price of gold um, between the years of 1971 and, and 1990. And this that, is written in the book? This is written in the book, and then he pretty clearly <laughs> outlines how this is actually what happened. All um, right, all right. Okay, yeah. so let's actually get started on the review of this book. Um, what what was... I see you've got a lot of bookmarks in there. Do you want to walk us through some of them? Uh, yeah, so I, I mean, the first thing I'd like to do is just dispel the myth that um, like we've talked to some economists uh, on this podcast, but uh, just in general, we've um, asked our friends, like, why is a gold standard a bad thing? And do you remember? And some people have asked us why the gold standard is a good thing. Like right. the fact that the central bank is in charge of this amount of money that is, or the quantity of money that is in circulation is probably a good thing or, you know, um we haven't necessarily always had people in our friend group or professional group who side with the fact that the gold standard was for the best in the name of progress. 
Right. And so do you remember what um, the people that we'd speak to who say the gold standard was a bad thing? Do you remember some of the things that they'd say about the gold standard? Yeah. One thing specifically was that uh, being on the gold standard stifled industrial growth. And because we got off of the gold standard, that's what pushed us towards the industrial age or the industrial era. Right. And so one of the things that I remember uh, some of the people we uh, spoke to saying about the gold standard is that the gold standard is responsible for a boom and bust cycle and uh, the ability and us going off the gold standard and the ability to print money uh, allows us to curb the boom and bust cycle. I actually don't remember that specifically, but I also question that logic. Why does the gold standard allow us to like, why, why are the cycles related to the gold standard? Cause Boom and busts happen no matter what, right? That's my yes. understanding. Yeah. And Ferdinand Lips would say that the boom and busts are a natural part of the economy. Right. And they're actually flatter. Uh, so smaller booms and smaller busts on a gold standard. Right. Um, and that like an economy just ebbs and flows, right? right. Like all things in life, things change. Right. Um, now, a fiat money standard says that if you're experiencing a bust, we can get ourselves out of the bust sooner and more effectively, if we print money to stimulate the economy. Does it really say that? Uh, well, that's, that's that the opinion the of like monetar modern monetary theorists and Keynesian economics. That's what Keynesian economics says, is that we can stop busts from happening altogether. Or if busts do happen, we can bail ourselves out because we've given ourselves the ability to, to print ourselves out of the situation. Mm, I might have to fact check that one because i don't specifically remember that being one of the arguments of modern monetary theorists but sorry go on yeah so i mean the first the first myth that i'd like to break is just that that gold is um not a stable it does like being on a gold standard doesn't give stability uh, but i'll read an excerpt here um and this is from the united states the periods of price stability under the classical gold standard from 1834 to 1862 and 1879 to 1913 are without parallel u.s consumer prices varied in a 26 percent range during these 62 years and were almost exactly at the same level at the beginning and the end of both periods in 1800 uh okay this is just a bunch of um nonsense basically um Maybe that wasn't such a great quote. Um, but what were you trying to get at? I'm trying to get at that um, under the gold standard, we actually saw a lot of uh, the most price stability. Um, so at the at the beginning and end of these periods, um, prices varied at most 26% within those periods of times. Um, and then when you, what, what periods of times though? Um, I believe it was uh, the beginning of the 1800s to 1913 and the, establish of, the establishment of the Federal Reserve Act. Quick question. Yeah. What were we using as money before the 1800s? It's actually pretty much always been gold. So why? I don't understand. You said that between these periods, we've experienced the most stability with the most volatility being 26%. Yeah. Um, but it's not from whenever we used gold until uh, the end of that period that you mentioned, but it's from the 1800s. From the 1800s to 1913 and okay, the establishment that. of the Federal Reserve Act from 1913 onwards is basically when we started going off the gold standard. Okay. And it took us about 50 to 60 years to officially go off the gold standard. But depending on how and when you measure um, <laughs> being on the gold standard, uh, it started in 1913. 
Yeah. Like, depending on who you ask, you, you'll get different answers. Okay. Yeah. Uh, basically, though, it uh, it goes through all sorts of um, different kingdoms. So, the French franc had, uh, between 18 and 14, and 1914, had 100 years of price stability. The Dutch gilder, between 1816 and 1914, 98 years of, of uh, price stability. But price stability with there being some give, right? Like, some volatility. What is... What is stability in this case? Right. So what we're used to is a constantly decreasing uh, currency. So may that be the US dollar, the euro, the Canadian dollar. That's what we're like us in 2021. That's what we're used to. Uh, but if you're on a gold standard, you actually see price stability. You see um, the value of your currency essentially stay the same, if not grow over time. And what that looks like on the market is things actually become cheaper. If, if the purchasing power of your dollar be, uh, grows over time, then things actually should become cheaper. They should be deflationary instead of inflationary. So the price stability is stability in growth. And yep. right now it's stability in decline yep. of purchasing power. That's right. Okay. Yeah. So then, we, so we can now talk about why and how the fiat standard came about. Um, and this is a quote from Ludwig von Mises. Uh, so all those intent upon sabotaging the evolution towards welfare, peace, freedom, and democracy loathed the gold standard, and not only on account of its economic significance. In their eyes, the gold standard was the laborum, the symbol of all those doctrines and policies that they wanted to destroy. In the struggle against the gold standard, there was more at stake than commodity prices and foreign exchange rates. Uh, the nationalists are fighting the gold standard because they want to sever their countries from the world market to establish national autarky, autarky as far as possible. Interventionist governments and pressure groups are fighting the gold standard because they consider it to be the most serious obstacle to their endeavors to manipulate prices and wage rates. But the most fanatical attacks against gold are made by those intent upon credit expansion. So this here kind of answers that earlier question of like, why would we want to get off the gold standard? And Ludwig von Mises says it pretty clearly here, credit expansion. And then you can ask, well, who benefits from credit expansion? The, the central bank does actually, because the, the central banks are private organizations. They have shareholders and they, they have profits. And if they're the central and they, have, they essentially have a monopoly on money printing. And when governments ask them to print more money, they profit. They have no other, there's no other way that can be done. Uh, if they're printing money, they're lending it to the government, and then the government is indebted to them, to the central bank. And so if... But then... Mm -hmm, being on a gold standard doesn't allow these central banks to infinitely expand and infinitely print money. But you said that when governments ask central banks to print money, and I've heard that people say that the central bank and the government are two separate entities, and they're not supposed to be closely related or closely take decisions based on one another's needs right but i've also heard people that are against this narrative say that well the central bank and the government are essentially the same there's just a, a separation of uh, duties for the public but that's actually not the case yeah anytime the government asks them to print more money they do like, I've never read an instance where the government has, has said, hey, we need more money in circulation. We need to solve this, this economic crisis. And the bank said, well, no, we shouldn't or can't. 
because that'll cause inflation or uh, like they always say yes. So yes, they're separate entities, but, and they're supposed to say yes and no, right? Uh, I actually have this, <laughs> this really great quote. Let me find it. Can you pad the, uh, the podcast here? <laughs> Yeah, for sure. I'm I'm trying to play devil's advocate as much as possible simply to have a nuanced discussion. So when you say that they always say yes, I'm, again, a little bit doubtful because um, I just don't know. I don't I don't think that we have gone back and looked at every single instance that the government has asked for there to be a stimulation in or a stimulus injected into the economy and the the federal bank has been like, yes, sure, let's do it. It you make it sound like that's always been the case but i i feel like in reality and in truth there might be more to the conversation than just the fact that the government asks for it and then the 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 federal reserve is like yeah sure let's do it right and i i mean i encourage anyone to find me an instance where a government has asked their central bank to print the money and the central bank has said no i can't find an instance like this have you looked i have looked yeah um, like I've Googled, I've, uh, I've read these books. I'm sure that like in the interest of uh, academic honesty, uh, Ferdinand Lips would put this in, in the bank or in the book, but this has not come up. Can't find that quote I was looking for, by the way. So that's what, fine. what was the, can you paraphrase the quote? Uh, n- no. Okay, <laughs> sounds good. If you come across it later, we can circle back. Maybe if you um, like rejog my memory of the quote that I was looking for, like what was, I already I already forget like what quote I was even looking for because you did such a good job padding. Well, well, we were talking about uh, why the government or why the central bank wanted to separate or get off of the gold standard and separate the money that we do use as being gold. And you said that that was on credit expansion. And you said that it was in the interest of the shareholders of the central bank to do so because that would. I'm paraphrasing here, but I assume that that meant that that drove their profits up because they were able to issue credit, which they weren't able to do before because of the limited um, backing that they had because gold is limited. Yeah, exactly. Gold is limited. And that the fact that it's limited is is the point um, of gold like that. It, the, the But can I have a question yeah. here? And uh, you know, if gold is limited, instead of them just going off of the gold standard, could one solution not be just overinflating the value of gold? Overinflating the value of gold? Yeah. So you know, if they wanted, if they wanted to issue credit, yeah. And the way that they could do that is by getting off of the gold standard, meaning they decide what money is worth. Then, um, like, w- w- couldn't they also have done that with? manipulating the value of gold and i don't know if the power of manipulating the value of gold was even possible uh, for them to have at the time but it, it's like saying well gold is worth what did you say what it was worth five ounce what was that measurement you said when was it worth the, I, I said I, it was worth about 250 dollars at the in like year 2000 250 dollars per ounce okay and now it, it's like 1800 okay so like for example could they not say oh gold is worth 250 dollars an ounce uh, it's gonna it's actually worth 300 dollars an ounce um at the end of the year or you know p- manipulate how people perceive the value of gold so that they could issue more of i don't know whatever they could issue if they they were backed by gold yeah absolutely and this is actually what they did so they wanted to demonetize gold so to assert 
the 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 fiat standard. What do you mean by demonetize gold? Uh, so central banks all over the world held, held gold in their coffers as backing for the currency that they they issued. Like a one to one backing at some point. Yeah, and the most recent example we have of that is actually Swiss banks. I didn't know this before reading this book, but uh, the Swiss actually had uh, gold, like they were entirely gold backed until the nineties. I didn't know this. Okay. Um, then they were convinced to join the IMF. And it's against the rules of the IMF to back your currency with gold. Wow. So, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. There's a, so <laughs> um, after the 1971, uh, after Nixon closed the gold window, uh, there's a there's another quote in the book somewhere here that says uh, that it was it basically rendered the um, obsolesced. Um, What's obsolesced? It made the IMF obsolete after 1971 the, the job of the imf was to um facilitate exchange between countries okay yeah and we really no longer needed the imf to do this after 1971 because we went on a u.s uh u.s dollar standard rather than a gold standard okay yeah and so then we still have them imf today and they kind of took on a role of um of, uh, of policing currencies? Policing currencies for sure, but also setting up loans from wealthy nations to poorer nations. But like now in retrospect, we know that that practice of giving poorer nations loans from wealthier nations is actually like a, a, a colonization tool. Um, like it's a takeover tactic, tactic, like put a nation in debt, knowing that they'll never be able to pay that debt. When they default, you seize that nation's assets and you basically seize the nation. That's just that. That's what just happened to Sri Lanka, right? China gave them a big loan to build a port. Sri Lanka just defaulted on their debt, and now uh, I'm pretty sure China is in the process of basically acquiring Sri Lanka. But that's not the only reason that Sri Lanka is facing no, the turmoil that it is. It's just right. one of the reasons, and that kind of sounds a little scary because I was just listening to um, an episode of the All In podcast, and they were talking about how the credit. Uh, consumer credit is at its highest either because people needed to pay their bills or because they needed to spend money um, after two years of being indoors you know the general public just wants to live their lives but that's not a great thing because inflation is high the job market is actually not that bad but the consumer credit is also very high so then who comes in to swoop people's credit away and let them like is this some sort of long um long plan of they're like inserting a social credit system um I, like because so you use the word colonizing and i'm just thinking that there is some analogy here between wealthier nations using a tactic to essentially quote-unquote colonize uh, poorer nations by giving them loaning out to them money that they do not have the ability to pay back and can that be sort of juxtaposed with the current condition that consumer debt is facing where people are spending money they do not have either because they need to or because they want to but are they really going to be able to pay back that debt and is the interest on the money that they've spent going to rise so much that someone's going to have to come in and say well i'll be responsible for your death but now you owe me your House, car, house, car wait, asset, some sort of asset. It can also be time, your, your labor, your whatever. Exactly. That's actually 
That's exactly right. So in that context, it actually makes a lot of sense when we go and look at the World Economic Forum. And like the number one thing on that video that I take away, uh, the World Economic Forum's video is in the year 2030, you'll own nothing and be happy. Oh, because they own everything. They'll own everything. Yeah. Or whoever <laughs> bails people out. Right. right. Yeah, absolutely. And it'll be a renter's economy. Because um, like, you'll own nothing, but someone has to own it. Yeah. Right. And who owns it? That's, that's essentially the question. Right. And the same tactic is being played out right before our eyes in, in 2022. Um, like consumer credit is, is rising at some point. It hits a breaking point. There's no other, there's no other way around it. Um, yeah. We what either, makes, what, what makes it hit that big breaking point? Like, what is the breaking point? You outlined it perfectly. Um, the, like, the at some payments. point, you're not even going to be able to, you're going to max out all of your credit cards and you're not going to be able to pay back the interest that you own and the money that you owe to the bank that you've loaned it from. And then what happens? Yeah. And then essentially, they, they have the ability to foreclose on your assets. Um, they can. But sell. we're not talking mortgages, though. We're talking just general credit. Yeah. Credit that the bank gives you or even using your credit card, maxing it out. Yeah. They, you can still get foreclosed? Like I thought that's a word that people use only on houses. Um, so anything that has a lien on it, okay. like anything that you've taken a loan for from the bank, and this would be like assets of significance. So uh, car loans, for example. Often, no, but I'm talking about credit card. Credit card debt. Oh, credit card debt. That that will just pretty much go away. Like you can, you can, that'll hurt your credit score, but that like you, no one can take your assets because you owe credit card debt. Yeah, I wonder how that works out. Anyway, we yeah, we're sorry, in the weeds a little just, bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that was just because I thought it was very similar to what's happening currently. But if we go back to the gold standard and how we're not on it anymore, <laughs> um, so what? What were some of the really significant things you you got to learn from this book? Uh, one of the weirdest things that I read in this book was the price suppression of gold. Uh, so in 1971, uh, gold was something like 35, between 35 and 42 dollars per ounce of gold. And shortly after Nixon closed the gold window, uh, gold went to 850 dollars per ounce. So that's a 20x increase in the price of gold between the years oh. of 1971 to about 1978. Because they wanted everyone to sell their gold. They wanted everyone to sell their gold, but that's not what they did. So then they had... And who's like they meaning the people? People that uh, were holding gold? Uh, no, I, the IMF and central banks actually wanted to suppress the price of gold. And so they had an active campaign to do so. So th this is, just follow me here and then, and then we'll ask. I, I want to follow you. Okay. You said that there was a 20x rise in the price of gold. Yeah. And then you said they wanted to suppress it. So I'm just confused as to why there was a rise in the price of gold and whether that was also manipulated and what are the two powers that are against each other right now in this line okay yeah that that's a good question so the two powers uh you want to be thinking about the people generally just okay. the people and i can uh break down who who makes up the people um and the, then who's the second party what like central banks and the imf Okay, so the central banks and IMF are together on this. Central banks, IMF, and the Bank of International Settlements. Those are all parties that are working together to suppress the price of and gold. And when you mention Nixon, what part does his presidency play? Uh, his presidency plays the part of seeing the supremacy of the United States dollar as the global world reserve currency. So was he on the side of the people or the central bank? Central banks. Okay. Yeah. So it's people versus central bank. And like more so than the central banks, he's on the 
part of uh, like the country of America, not necessarily right. the people that make up the country, but uh, the ability power. To, then, the, yeah, essentially power, okay. power economics. <laughs> that like the the author says a lot about uh, what was he called power brokers. <laughs> okay. Yeah, like um, basically people manipulating the economics so that they have more power. Because once you have all the money in the world, once you control all the money then the game you're playing is not about money anymore. It's about power. Right. Uh, which is a really interesting perspective. Right on. So yeah. what made the price of gold go up 20x? Uh, so was that manipulated or was that... That was speculation. That, oh, okay. Yeah, so... FOMO then. Uh, Nixon closed the gold window. He... When you say gold window, you, you mean... The convertibility of the dollar to gold. Okay. Yeah. And so in ni- before 1971, countries who held gold with America could redeem the dollars that they had for gold that America was holding for them. Why was America holding gold for other countries? A lot of countries shipped their gold overseas in World War II, uh, especially European nations, to protect them against Germans. Because uh, as soon as German uh, Germany... Uh, would go into other countries, uh, they would seize the gold assets. Uh, okay. Yeah, that was like a huge rationale and huge motivation for um, for the war in the first place. It's like, we need more land, we need more money. Okay. And money is gold. Okay. Uh, so countries like France, uh, the UK, um, Portugal, Spain, they all ship their gold overseas to America to hold for safekeeping. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then that's what led to Bretton Woods. The Bretton Woods says uh, that the U.S. dollar is convertible into gold at a one-to-one ratio. And then 1971 comes around, and countries realized that uh, they started uh, drawing on on the um, uh, on the reserves, on the gold reserves. And eventually, America said, "No, we're not going to give you back your gold. Give you back your gold." And that's actually a defaulting. So America defaulted on their debt. Essentially, they're in debt to all these other nations. Uh, all these other nations. They were only in debt because they used the gold that the countries were storing with them. Yes, and okay. they used the gold to issue more dollars than they had gold. Okay. And so then when countries, essentially the countries did a bank run okay. <laughs> on America. And America said, no, we're not going to redeem the, we're not going to, we're, we're breaking our promise. Right. Actually, like. Yeah, Ray Dalio said that too. Twice, I think America broke their promise. Yeah. And so it's it's totally weird that we're on the U.S. dollar <laughs> standard right now because it's actually it's one of the that's it's the world reserve currency right now. And as early as 51 years ago, it defaulted, and the the U.S. dollar was essentially worth nothing. Uh, it was supposed to be worth nothing because be people nothing. wanted the gold back that the U.S. had already spent or issue more money that wasn't yet established as valuable. Yeah, and so the rise of gold after 1971 to 850 dollars per ounce was um, like Ferdinand Lips says it's a natural reaction. If there's more dollars in existence and gold is the base level money, we would expect that the value of gold to to rise to to meet that to meet that that fact the fact that there's more dollars in existence um, that that was why gold exploded. There's a couple other reasons like. Uh, Saudi Arabia was selling oil too cheaply, for example. Then it started to sell oil much more expensively. That's the OPEC oil crisis. Mm. And Saudi Arabia bought a ton of gold, just like dollars and dollars and dollars and dollars of gold. Everyone had to buy oil from Saudi Arabia. And Saudi Arabia took a huge chunk of that money and bought gold with it. And that's what bid up the price to $850. That was one of the factors. One of the factors, yes. Right. 
And then so the IMF, the Bank of International Settlements and central banks, they got together and were like, okay, this is a bad situation. Our fiat money is losing dominance. It's losing power. We need some way to um, suppress the value of gold. And so what why the- was that the solution? Uh, yeah, why wasn't the solution to go back on the gold standard? I mean, like what? I, I just I'm wondering why that was the rationale that, oh, we need to suppress this money that everybody thinks is valuable because the the higher the price of gold the lower the value of fiat money of the u.s dollar just all fiat money okay yeah so it wasn't just the wasn't just the american dollar that had a lot to lose it was every country that had issued their own currency at the time that was still pegged to the gold standard so at the like at the end of the 70s no currency was pegged to the u.s uh pegged to um gold gold except for a couple including the um the swiss franc right yeah um <laughs> so yeah we're in the like the late 70s these these uh so the imf bank and the international settlements and the central banks are all freaking out because if the gold the price of gold keeps on going up um that that really does mean that the value of those currencies are going down and they find themselves in a really bad situation like if the price of gold kept on going up they'd have to default eventually okay, okay. and so they need to come up with an but act. have to default to whom though like what does that even look like yeah, what does that look like? I'm not even sure. Like, it looks like a Great Depression, actually, is what it looks like. You have because a- people don't have gold anymore because they've deposited it to the bank. And if the bank can let other countries know that they're not going to give them their gold back, then what's it to stop f- st- stop giving people back their gold that they have entrusted exactly. onto the bank? Okay, interesting. Yeah. So this is the weird part. This is the weird part of the book, okay? Uh, their strategy for suppressing the price of gold worked. It worked for about 20 years. How did they do that? They convinced gold companies, companies that mine gold, to sell gold that they haven't mined yet. So Wait, what's the profitability equation there? Why did the gold mining companies agree? Were they paying them in US dollars or something? Uh, yeah, they would buy. So they re- said, we'll give you more US dollars than the value of US dollars is right now for you to say you've there's just more gold in existence than there really was? Yeah, absolutely. So it's basically shorting. It was basically naked shorting, actually, gold, because there's less gold in circulation than what they were shorting of gold. So they were selling... How are they shorting gold? If they're paying for gold that doesn't exist yet with money that doesn't have value yet. Yeah, so the central banks, which were still holding gold, but not redeeming it for dollars or uh, fiat currency, um, they would lend the gold to the gold mining companies who would then sell it at a profit. Sell it to whom? Sell it uh, into the market. So basically like... To um, people or to other companies, donations, who? Just whoever would buy. Like there's gold brokerages, gold bullion brokerages, and whoever would buy it. Okay. So basically the market, the people. Okay. Just individual investors. Okay. Um, basically no countries were, were buying gold at this point Because they probably were in on it. They were in on it. That's right. They're all doing the fiat money standard, right? They're all... <laughs> They're all invested in this this scheme of fiat money. So they all have an interest in seeing the price of gold plummet. And that's exactly what happened. Why? uh, Well, because these gold mining companies were selling more gold than they had on hand. They were were borrowing gold at a 1% interest rate, selling it directly into the market and knowing that that would crash the price. And since it crashed the price... Why did they crash the price though? Um... Imagine then just flooding the market with gold, right? It's actually the same thing that caused Luna to crash. 
It's the same thing that caused UST to crash. Uh, basically, someone took uh, borrowed a whole bunch of uh, UST and just sold it on the market for a more trustworthy version of the US dollar that crashed the price of, of UST, which crashed the price of Luna. So they're borrowing all this money just just to sell it again. That's that's they're actually borrowing gold to sell it back into the market. Yeah, but more gold than they had. Like, okay, so here's what I'm. I just want to get some clarity on. Yeah. Um, you're you're saying they flooded the market, so they added more liquidity to the market, which is added more gold. They increased the supply of gold in a shorter period of time by selling it to the market than was uh, the normal uh, rate at which they would be able to add the supply of gold to the market because of the rate at which they would mine gold. That's right. Okay, so they borrowed, but did people know that they were borrowing gold or did they think that it was just mined gold? Um, that's a good question. I'm like, people were trading gold stock, right? You, you got to keep in mind that like for the last 50 or 60 years, we're gold, not actually go- physically trading. We're gold. not trading gold. Yeah. Gold's not really moving around the planet. We're yeah. just trading gold on paper. But I guess it's also information, right? Like do, did people even know that gold mining companies were doing this? Um, some people knew like Ferdinand Lips they... saw this play out. Um, but like he, he also worked time. at a bank exactly and, and Goldbug saw this and um certain key members of uh like the imf and the the american but they knew that federal reserve knew this and watched it happen and okay but gold mining companies they knew it would crash the price of gold at least in the short term why did they agree to it uh short-term profitability leads to higher share prices um because the di- you can declare big dividends for, for like they were allowed to sell gold seven years into the future <laughs> what does that mean allowed to sell gold um so th- uh they have contracts that say that they're not allowed to sell things that they don't have on hand um but they were given permission to sell gold seven years into the future so they could forecast how much gold they would pull out of the ground up to seven years in the future and sell that into the market in one year so they were getting money worth seven years of mining in one year, even though the next year it would crash the price of gold or in the near would future. crash the price, yeah. Because they make their money back. And yeah. that's a lot of money. And if the price of gold goes down uh, and they've borrowed the gold, it, it costs them less to repurchase the gold when gold's a lower price. So they're invested in seeing the price of gold continually go down forever because then they can make good on their on their shorts, right? They have to repay the gold at some point. But that's it's basically market making. Like they're the people that know how much gold is actually in existence, but like they're just profiting off of people not knowing what's actually happening behind the scenes. Yeah. And then there's this other play in place here where once the price of gold crashes, it's the the country is kind of wanting to swoop in and saying, "Hey, what about fiat? This has value because now this is more valuable than gold. Like don't don't trust gold. Is yeah. that really what happened? That's really what happened." <laughs> <laughs> and so wow. that's one thing that suppressed the price. The second thing is that central banks were encouraged by the IMF and the Bank of International Settlements um, and actually required by being a member of the IMF to part with a certain percentage of their gold reserves. Why would one want to be a member of the IMF? Uh, like what was what what did the membership give people? That's a good question. I don't I don't think I have the answer. Well, for you that. said that the IMF was the 
essentially the authority that allowed other countries to trade with other countries, like international trade. But yeah, they why? helped set up like arrangements, so debt arrangements or loans or or whatever. In the past as well? Yep, past and present. That's that's kind of one of the roles I mean, that the IMF does. we didn't need the IMF to do that before, did we? Correct. So yeah. they just gave themselves the job of doing this and we took membership? I'm sure there was a political play here somewhere that just increased the... Uh, illusion of their power yes when they're really they didn't really have any right yeah their job people were able to like countries were able to trade with other countries regardless of their existing in imf but the imf came in saying hey membership give us your gold then you can do xyz things pretty much yeah and so as a part of a member you're not supposed to back your currency with gold um, as being a member of the imf and so they actively (laughs) encouraged um countries and their central banks to sell their gold but this is the way that they would do it they'd make an announcement that they're selling the gold which would crash the price and then they would sell the gold and that makes no sense at all from a trader's perspective right so imagine i'm a trader and i'm sitting on a hundred thousand bitcoin right a lot of bitcoin right actually can you just take the example of tesla okay no, yeah. because tesla sold their bitcoin in what the second quarter Maybe? yeah actually that's a great and they example they didn't they didn't tell anyone but they which, didn't which tell good. anyone because that was the smart thing to do yeah. if they told people that they were selling 75 percent of their bitcoin holdings yeah. first yeah they would get a lower price for the bitcoin after right. they sold it right so they kept it a secret that they're selling it they sold it yeah and then they told people right i mean they didn't really tell people they just had to list it right yeah they're a publicly traded company yeah. and so they had to report it after the fact right yeah um what actually happened with these central banks is they did the disclosure first they said we're going to sell this amount of gold and that kept the whole propaganda campaign going of uh, gold is no longer a modern uh, monetary standard. Like it's obsolete. We don't need it anymore. We're evolutionarily evolved. Like this is the narrative that they put forward. I mean, I I don't really know what the psychology uh, or the critical thinking encouraged was, how much critical thinking was encouraged at that that time. But did people really buy that? Uh, The book says that like... The general was, public never has bought any of this narrative. Yeah, <laughs> Actually, I, I know, like, that's what I'm thinking. Like, <laughs> I mean, any person that has invested in gold or just is investing at all, I'm sure has some level of critical thinking skills or skepticism to hear some hear an announcement like this and go, wait, why is this happening? This makes no sense. If you you tell me you're going to sell your gold. Like, this is just some weird market tactics or market making that's going on, right? Yeah, pretty much. And and so what, like, how how did they do it? How did they exercise control over a market like that? So if you control the supply, you can control the market. You can control the price, but only for a limited amount of time, right? So imagine a central bank is sitting on, um, like, 100 tons of gold, let's just say, let's just use that as, as an example. Um, they sell one ton, then they sell one ton, then they sell one ton. And they keep on doing this in an attempt to suppress the value, the, the price of gold. But at a certain point, they're going to run out of gold. And that mechanism, they're no longer going to be able to perform. And so this is why Ferdinand Lips says that gold is actually like it, it will eventually conquer all, right? You can't run this scheme forever. Right. And probably people sold out of FOMO because even if they if even if they um, didn't fall for the propaganda immediately, if the price of their investment was going down, then psychologically, like, hodling forever is not really um, 
something that you are blessed with as a skill. You have to grow the skill of never selling or holding your investments and seeing that through. So I guess FOMO is what crashed the price as well, even if people didn't fall for the bullshit at first. Uh, the uh, FOMO. FOMO is not exactly like FOMO. I usually associate with the price going up. Um, FUD. FUD. Okay. FUD crashed the price. Fear, uh, I guess fear. I, I, yeah, I guess I was thinking of fear of missing. Fear of missing out on the price of gold that mm-hmm. they would get. Uh, yeah, I, I, yeah. Don't buy out of FOMO. Don't sell. Okay. Anyway. So, so there's a really interesting example of uh, of a gold company. Um, they had where based out of uh, where South Africa. Apparently, and South Africa gold- is the second largest producer of gold in the world. Gold mining company. Yeah. Okay. Um, and this company almost went bust. Uh, they've got like two thousand um, derivative contracts, meaning um, they've set up, they've sold a bunch of gold that they had in the ground uh, that they haven't yet pulled out of the ground. Right. And uh, the price of gold is going down, 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 down. Now, if the price goes up suddenly then um, they've got a bunch of short positions open and they are no longer able to buy the amount of gold that they owe off the market at the current price. And so if the price goes up, if the price goes up, (laughs) so it puts all these gold companies in a really precarious position. Um, But yeah, so all these countries that produce gold were in a really bad position with the price of gold going down because uh, not only are there their personal um, reserves, the value of their personal reserves going down as the price of gold goes down. The, uh, the amount, the ability for these gold mining companies to stimulate the economy also goes down as the price of gold goes down. But wouldn't they have known that when they took the bait or not bait, sorry, took the contract to buy gold? Is this different from them buying gold from the United States and you would selling think it to that the market? They know this. Like, this is no, but like, so mm-hmm. hang on. I just want to get the timeline of this straight um gold mining companies bought gold from the U- u.s no they borrowed it oh and sold it diff- on the market oh i see they borrowed it at a one percent interest rate yeah. and sold it to the market yeah for a short-term profitability equation yeah to take place but then the price of gold went down yeah and then they were in a pickle why oh the price of gold went down, but then there was like periods of time when there was spikes of upward price movement in the price right of gold. Right after, like what period of time are we talking? 19- 20 years, like basically 1978 to the year 2000. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, like, which is a period of high inflation as well. Uh, okay. Like the, the US dollar lost something like 60% of its value during that time. Um, and like the other way to think about that is gold should go up during that time. Right. But then you've got this huge suppression of gold taking place um, because you you want to limit the, the, the perception that the va- the dollar is worth less and gold is worth more. You want to limit that perception. Right. You want to kill that narrative. Right. And that's essentially what they were doing. This is a huge propaganda campaign to to keep trust and faith in, in the US dollar and fiat How, currencies in general. What was this campaign? How did they roll that out? Uh... How did they roll that out? Basically, through like shareholder meetings, um, the IMF uh, and like G7, G8, G20 summits, uh, they would perpetually propagate the narrative that a modern economy is controllable and a credit-based 
infinite expansion paradigm is the modern mature way to, to run things. Basically, Keynesian economics is is the way that that modern society should be run. It's the right way to to run things and to and like they would ridicule gold, right? They would just dismiss it. They would say it's a relic of the past. It's a barbaric aspect of our society that we can now leave behind because we're an enlightened race we now know how to manage our economies um and then ferdinand lips is like mm, no <laughs> not not quite so i have a good quote here okay you ready yeah fiat money systems always collapse because greed and the lust for power know no limits those who possess the ability to create and benefit from money created out of nothing always overreach the result is generally a move towards more statist government to remedy the collapse and control or regulate the economy to help prevent future collapses. Those who create the funny fiat money are usually left in charge with greatly expanded power, right? So remember earlier we were talking about this is a power game. Uh, basically, But gold power is, for yeah. how long though? Because... You know, mm -hmm. we've talked about bubbles before, and can there be a bubble of power? Can you have so much power that you just collapse on yourself? Yeah, I would say that's basically what happened with the USSR. Oh. Uh, right? Like, they socialized everything, and they caused a huge part of their population to, to starve to death, and, like, they collapsed under their own power. Right. Okay. That might be for another time. <laughs> yes, right. But go gold is the governor of governments. Uh, it or keeps, was it was is it, it, it still it keeps them in check i would so the book would argue that it still is um like ferdinand lips says it's inevitability that the fiat money system will will eventually collapse um under its own weight and at that point in time we'll see a monumental rise in the price of gold like gold needs to basically rise to the the price that it's supposed to be because it's been artificially uh deflated for, for so long it's been artificially kept low here's what i don't get though yeah the value in both fiat and gold are are still perceived because it's not like, um, I don't know how I was going to complete that sentence, but what I was going for is what value do we get out of gold anyway for one and two if it's not actual physical gold that we store under our mattress or in a safe somewhere anymore and it's just a peg to gold, what, like, it's just a, it's just a push and pull of, of what is more valuable, right? Because I guess one thing is limitless, which is fiat, and then one thing is limited, which is gold. But the perceived value of both, it comes from the scarcity of both of those things and not necessarily from the practical value that we can gain out of it. Yes, that's exactly right. Um so it's still perception of power or perception of value, not power. Yeah. And the reason why gold has been able to maintain its perception of value over thousands of years is because of its scarcity and because of uh, how quickly we can put more gold into circulation and the lack of the ability for government to seize the means of control of production of gold on a worldwide basis. So since the government does not have the ability to effectively regulate the inflation of gold, it puts gold outside the realms of power of government. You mean outside the control? Yes. Of government? Outside the control of government, for okay. sure. Okay. Yeah. Just be simply because the world is so big. Right. The world is so vast. Right. Um, 
it'd be like the government trying to co-opt every Bitcoin miner in existence. Like that's right. that's a hard job to do. Right. Since that is a, it's, it's like the government faces physical limitations if they wanted to completely control gold. Gold is not controllable by governments, which is why they do not want it at the center of governments who are obsessed with power. Right. Do not want it at the center of their monetary system. Well, you say governments that are obsessed with power, but what government isn't? Well, I guess obsessed is a very strong word, but what government doesn't want power? Um, so we have had instances of of uh, governments in the past who understand the relationship between um, money, government, and people. Governments or rulers? And then also more specifically, um, like one person or one entity within a government or just... I guess, a, a ruler or a dictator. I would say the government in general. Because okay. um, it was in the constitution, the Swiss constitution, um, until 1998 that uh, they should not part with their gold reserves. Um, like it's non-negotiable. They will not sell the gold reserves no matter what. Um, and then the IMF pushed the Swiss into a situation where they were forced to sell their gold reserves. Um, the They overturned the Swiss constitution and the Swiss actually got a new constitution in 1998. There's the Swiss people were supposed to vote on the new constitution in a matter of three weeks. And this constitution, this new constitution was built over the course of two years. And then the people had to vote on it in a matter of three weeks. And within that, there was no mention of gold. So go everything that was referring to gold in the old constitution that kept the, the power of uh, the Swiss Frank um, linked to gold all of that was removed. How were they able to execute that in such a short period of time? Because it was a short period of time. So it, it was basically confusing the public, giving them such a short period of time to make a, a decision. And then there was a hundred or more amendments to the constitution, um, which kind of like uh, distracted or, um, yeah, distracted is the right word, away from... Uh, the fact that there's now no monetary policy effectively in, in the Swiss, in the Swiss government, uh, which allowed them to, to, to execute that and to make that new constitution, bring that into place and sever the Swiss's um, backing of their currency to gold. Right. So it seems like that was an effective strategy that, that for them at least and didn't work the best in the favor of the public did like did it work in the favor of the public no fiat money has never worked in the favor of the public okay so then if you know this was a plan that was set in motion in 1970 right now we're in 2022 and this book you said uh, gold wars was written in 2001 yes but where are we now how are we supposed to deal with this knowledge now well, let's just do a quick Google. Can you just Google the price of gold for me real quick? Sure. And uh, we can maybe talk about where are we now. We'll, we'll try to fill in the gaps and uh, see if you can bring up a 20 or 30 year chart of gold so that we can see what happened since 1990 through the 90s, through the 2000s into 2010. Okay, so I'm on goldprice.org, but this doesn't show me... Wait, I'm gonna oh, yeah, there's the three-day candle there. So if you drop the three days there. Yeah. And to let's 10 do, years, 15 years, 20 years. Let's do one year, and then we'll be able to see like a good year-over-year year happening. So, yeah, in March of 2022, the gold price spiked up to $2,050 per ounce. Um, 
oh, this doesn't really show us much, does it? It only shows us as far back as September 2021. Yeah, this... Oh, yeah, okay. So it's only showing us one year. Show us last uh, 30 years. Okay. There you go. So in 1993, the price of gold... Okay, hang on. So currently we're looking at the chart of um, the price of gold over the past 30 years on the site goldprice.org. Yeah, and you can see in 1993, the price of gold is about $400 per ounce. Um, In 2000, it was less than that, about $250. And then throughout the 2000s to the 2010s, um, kind of alongside the housing bubble, you saw uh, gold essentially quintuple um, or almost go up 10x from $200 to $2,000 spiking around the time. That's not the housing bubble. Like that's, I guess that's between 2008 and 2012. Yeah. There's a, so between 2008 and 2012, it went from around $1,000 to $1,800. Yeah. And in front, what does that tell us though? That basically tells us that as like, as credit expands, um, as more fiat money is created, uh, the value of gold goes up, which is actually what you would expect. You mean the price of gold goes up? Yes, yeah, sorry, the price of gold goes up, yes. Okay. And this is actually what you would expect to happen. Um, now, someone like Ferdinand Lips might say that the price of gold has not gone up as much as you would expect it to. And that's still because uh, essentially gold was demonetized. Um, the, the public's faith or understanding of gold in, uh, as a function, um, like as a monetary function, its role in, in the economy that was obscured. That was essentially destroyed and propagandized and um, just made obsolete. <laughs> okay, but yeah. I still don't understand. Like, how how does he end the book? What happened in two thousand one? Because obviously we hadn't gone through nine um, eleven. Well, we hadn't gone through nine eleven, and I'm not sure how that impacts the price of gold. But we hadn't gone through the two thousand eight financial crisis either, and we hadn't hadn't gone through COVID. So. Like, I'm just wondering, reading this book and understanding the relationship that we have with gold, we the people have with gold, what do we do with that information now in 2022? So that's a good question. He ends the book basically saying that at at, a, at some point in time in the future, we're going to have to repay our debts. And what that looks like is is a depression that we being the people and the government uh well not really because like the government but our, is, our is debts a, how though like we always knew we needed to pay back our debts yeah so who is he referring to the people oh okay like the people need to the people essentially will bear the losses of the government borrowing from the future perpetually borrowing from the future. Okay. Um, and this has happened with every fiat money in existence, uh, okay. right? Like there's an, an eventual collapse. And when that happens, uh, yeah, we get a depression. Uh, and he says that we're seeing, like we've got the bubble of everything happening right now. Like the, it's a massive credit bubble. It's basically a $100 trillion credit bubble. And when that pops, uh, we don't have like a backup money to... to um, to fall back on right usually it it, like in the past when this would happen um whatever the best currency in the world is would would rise or would become the dominant currency and usually that currency would be backed by gold like we have to 
to reback our currencies at, at a certain point in time. And that would essentially cause like a redistribution of wealth. Um, right. So whoever's holding scarce assets at that point in time would be the benefactors of this collapse. Whoever's holding currency at this time, uh, would be the, um, not the benefactors. And all of the central banks are holding, uh, currencies, right? They're holding each other's currencies as, as backings. That's what, that's what's on the balance sheets and the books of all of our central banks. And so they have an incentive to see this, this True. scheme yeah. go on as long as possible until they have a system that is the backup, right? right? So that when it does pop, they can say, you know what? We saw this coming actually. Uh, we have a solution for this. Now we're all going to use the digital dollar or we'll use the like international new currency, whatever that's going to be a shift that, that'll be a shift so ferdinand lips says that like you can suppress the price of gold but it actually doesn't distract or it doesn't nullify the value of gold right you can sorry you can just you can suppress the price of gold yeah but that doesn't take away or subtract from the actual value of gold you, you, or perceived the, value of gold yeah you don't destroy the function of gold in an economy by suppressing its price you okay. actually just delay it so Gold miners right now are still mining gold because people are still buying gold. So yes. people never stop buying gold. Because if Correct. if the pro- like was the was the aim of the propaganda, the mess- messaging and propaganda to suppress the slightest value that people found in gold, or like because yeah. was was this a wild card that people are still buying gold and still people still believe in gold? Well, if if you're selling gold, you have to have a buyer. Yeah, and. So they saw gold, they wanted gold to go down in value because they wanted to destroy the perception, the perception of value in gold. The perception that gold is money. They wanted right. to destroy that perception. That is the thing that they needed to essentially pull the wool over the eyes of the entire public, right? If you can destroy the idea that gold is money, then the only thing that is left standing is the money that they've given you to use right? The money that they're issuing. And they, since they hold the, the power to issue new currency and to, to issue new units, um, they have a monopoly on the idea of money. And, you know, Ferdinand Lips would say, well, that doesn't matter because like gold is still there. Um, but then like, yeah, you, you still have gold in people's pockets. And, right. And, so it doesn't, yeah. I mean, I guess I, they succeeded in squashing the perception of gold being counted as money, but they haven't been able to wipe, not even sure if that was the intention, but they haven't been able to completely wipe the perception of value found in gold. Yes, I would agree with that, especially because gold is still a 10 to $12 trillion asset today. Yeah, but but that that's the question though. Did they want there to, did they also want to squash the perception of value in gold? As well so. as money? I think that they had the, the the mission to destroy the notion that gold is money. And yes, and, and that has been done for the most part. For the most part. But money is not the same as an investment or an asset. Right. I mean, I guess an investment in this case. And people still buy gold as an investment. Yeah, so now it's more seen as a commodity or an investment. Right, as opposed to money. As opposed to money. But, I mean, I would go so far as to say that there's still a a massive group of people um, 
who hold the perception that gold is money and it actually has very potent store of value properties because it is a 10 to 12 trillion dollar asset. The commodity market for gold is not 10 to 12 trillion dollars, right? It's used under electronics and whatnot, but it's not 10 to 12 trillion dollars worth of that. Right. People buy gold because it's an effective store of value and has been for, for thousands of years. Right. Right. They're not buying it because they're turning it into like they're turning all of their ounces of gold into necklaces and stuff like that's right. not why people buy gold. That's right. why people buy jewelry. Right. But they buy gold to store their value and to protect against inflation. Right. Yeah, which is it's still serving that function. Well, I guess not just protect against inflation, but also to keep the perception of it growing in purchasing power over time going. Yes. Because, I mean, that's what is largely used as um, a gift in India, especially when someone gets married or someone has a child is, oh, here's some gold because when you're 18 years old or when you have a child, you can pass this down and they will be able to do something with it in um, in a time of need. Yes. Right on. There we go. Thank you for talking about the Cold Wars. I'm I'm sure that there's a lot of juicy bits still in there and I'm going to I'm going to think of some more things to ask or discuss as the um the the opposite or as the devil's advocate for for the whole perception of gold being money um etc. just to sort of understand more about like, what are we being played for right now? Because it kind of feels like we're the um, what are we're the the players in a game of chess, and we're just sort of being moved around. Oh, we're the pawns. We're the pieces. We're the pieces. Yeah, we're not the players. Yeah, sorry, that's what I meant. Yeah, the, like pieces. Yeah, we're the pawns, I guess, in a game of chess, but we're just being played. And I don't know if I. I mean, actually, I'm pretty sure that my perception of this is very biased because of where i stand with respect to people possessing as much power as they do but i I really wonder on a larger scale of things how people wanting to possess power are also dependent on us because without pieces to play there is no game that's right so absolutely the more people there are the bigger your tax base is as well sure but it's still like you still have to play your game well because some of your pieces are more important than others and i'm sure that we can categorize some um categories of people that earn a certain level or have some certain jobs as those specific pieces and just wondering how we can use this knowledge to navigate our lives to live the best lives that we possibly can with our wealth and our assets and our investments our meaning like the people because we're obviously not part of the government or part of the people that are looking for this enormous amount of power that's right all right i have some closing thoughts just just to wrap things up okay um so this is a quote from aristotle in effect there's nothing inherently wrong with fiat money provided we get perfect authority and godlike intelligence for kings so i love this view right because it, it basically says that there's nothing wrong with fiat money implicitly it's actually the uh the human element yeah. That is introduced or attached to um, fiat money right. that causes fiat money to be such a problem. And that human element is greed and corruption. Right. The ability to, to fu- if you have the ability, if you have it within your power to create something for nothing, to create money out of thin air, then that is an irresistible power. That power corrupts absolutely. And, uh, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Yes. Uh, right. And 
<laughs> so there's nothing wrong with fiat money um, necessarily. The, the thing that's wrong with fiat money is the fact that we've got humans creating it, which is why, um, you know, Bitcoin. <laughs> oh my gosh. Hey, I guess you did, had to use that word in there somewhere. <laughs> we did. It, it wouldn't be a proper crypto episode or Bitcoin episode unless we ended it with the word Bitcoin. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening so far. Send us your thoughts. Get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram. Um, or email right now if you want to. But if you're listening to this in the future, which is past August 14, 2022, find us on Twitter um, and tweet at us. All right. Have a great week, everyone.